How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Wet. I'm sure everyone's a little wet. Um, everyone doing okay with the fast? We're like in the home stretch. If you're doing the fast, like, yeah. Praise God. We're almost done, right? So, uh, yeah, we're, we're getting close to the end. Uh, I was telling them last night, and I, I, I told it not out of any kind of place of, of, of arrogance or anything like that, but when I first started doing this fast, uh, the last 10 days I would do nothing. I would just drink water for 10 days. And I was young and dumb and didn't know like how you had to kind of prep your body for that. And, um, and so I had not eaten for 10 days, nothing, no solid food for 10 days. And me and a couple of my friends that I was doing this fast with, so I'm like, hey, let's go to Logan's and get a big steak, you know? And so, yeah, you already know where this is going because you're smart. But um, went to Logan's and I got this big steak and a baked potato and hadn't eaten in 10 days. And I, I cut this thing up, like, like drown it in A1 sauce and then just shove a bunch of it in my mouth. And I get about three bites into the steak and it felt like I had swallowed a razor blade. I mean, like I buckle over in Logan's and I'm like, dear God, I'm dying, you know? And, but I felt pretty confident as to where I was going if I died. I just got done with a 40 day fast. So I was like, uh, <laughs> so it's not all bad, but I made it. I just learned after you don't eat for 10 days, you should probably eat something a little bit easier on the stomach than a, a sirloin steak. So um, anyways, all that being said, we are in the book of Revelation. If you've been with us for any length of time, we've been in this, gosh, for like six months now or something. We've been in it for quite a while. We're in the 19th chapter, and we are kind of coming out of the extremely dark spell that we've been in. Um, we've been in a chunk of Revelation that is hard for me to teach, not because it's difficult, but because it's, it's hard. It's a very, um, very sad, very, uh, uh, chapter 18 especially is very mournful. It's, it contains a dirge, which is a funeral song, and it's a very kind of dark chunk, uh, chapters about 15 to 18 of Revelation. Very, very dark, but we're kind of coming out of that. And in chapter 19, we're going to start to get into the really, really fun stuff to teach, the, the kind of light at the end of all this darkness. We're going to start seeing that in chapter 19 and then moving on in the last three chapters. It's just unbelievably gorgeous. I mean, just beautiful, beautiful chapters and how the Bible ends and how the book of Revelation ends. It's, it's a it's fascinating, it's wonderful, and it's a lot of fun to talk about. Now, if you weren't here last week, we've been kind of building up to this fall of this great civilization called Babylon the Great. There's a hub, there's an epicenter, which will be a city sometime in the, in the future, and there will be this city that kind of sets the precedent or the culture for the entire world. And in chapter 18, we see that this falls. This is the last great empire that humans will ever build, and it falls apart. And it's, again, chapter 18 is a very, very sad chapter of Revelation. Chapter 19 is a big turn. We're gonna, we're gonna stop kind of talking about this fallen city, and we're gonna focus on a different group of people that hopefully all of us in this room will be a part of. In chapter 19, there's gonna be a celebration. We're gonna talk about a rider that's on a white horse, and we're gonna talk about the Battle of Armageddon, which is a very, very quick battle. And though chapter 19 is kind of the, the beginning of the light and the hope of Revelation, um, the end of chapter 19 is also one of the most gruesome and gory depictions in the entire Bible, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. So it's a very, very fun chapter. There's a lot going on in here, and um, it's kind of a roller coaster ride, but I think you'll enjoy it. So anyways, you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. It has everything I'm going to say. Uh, everything will be on the screens around the room. Um, if you have your Bible, we are in the very last book of the Bible. We're in the 19th chapter. And if you have the Experience Community app, click on service times and sermon notes, and you got everything right there, scripture 
and everything else. So there's a lot of applicable stuff today. I'll end on a very, very simple question, um, but it's not always the easiest question to answer. Easy to understand, sometimes hard to answer, but we'll get to that later, okay? So let me pray. We'll jump into chapter 20, and um, the next month or so is gonna be a lot of fun, a lot of really cool lessons, all right? So Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for everyone who, uh, who came to church today, God. Lord, even though I don't love the rain, we need the rain, and we thank you for that, God. And Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for uh, everyone in this room, God. Lord, we pray that you bless us and keep your hand on us, God. Open up our ears, open up our eyes. Lord, let us to hear you and see you and do what you tell us to do. Lord, we don't just pray for this church. We pray for every church, God. Every church that teaches you are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, God, we pray, Lord, that you bless those churches, grow those churches. We pray for all the great nonprofits that we work with and um, especially, God, renewed life that we're working with this month, Lord. I pray that you bless our Worship night that's coming up, Lord, that all four of our services can get together and praise you and, and just have a lot of joy and fun that night, God. And uh, Lord, we love you. You're good. And um, we just pray that you just are honored today with what we talk about and that this church is, is lifted up and encouraged, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. All right, so we just had the fall of Babylon. There's been this angel that is showing John all these things. So let's continue on, Okay. John says, after this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time, they said, hallelujah. Her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great. So like I said, chapter 18 is kind of a downer. Chapter 18 tells us about this evil city, this evil civilization, this culture that has been destroyed because that culture is excessive. It follows pleasures. It follows pursuit of itself. And it was a brutal culture. It shed the blood of the innocent and it shed the blood of the people of God. Now, chapter 19 gives us the finality of this notorious prostitute, Babylon, this city, this culture, this civilization. And it shows the victory that the people of God have over evil. What chapter 19 is this? We see a shift in chapter 19. We go from talking about this notorious prostitute to talking about the pure bride of Christ. Two different kinds of people, okay? Kind of, kind of uh, symbolically put into these two different cities. One was anti-God, one is the city of God, the kingdom of God. Now chapter 19 is a loud chapter. If you've been with us for Revelation, there's a lot of noise in Revelation. There's a lot of volume in Revelation. And we see that the volume is turned up in chapter 19 because it's a party. There's this voice of a multitude and this crowd is shouting hallelujah 
because salvation, glory, and power belong to God. Now, hallelujah is a word that you'll hear a lot in church, but we don't really explain what it means. A lot of people will even say it, but they don't, they don't even really know why they're saying it. It's heard in church. And all that word simply means is it's the Hebrew version of the, of, of the phrase, praise the Lord. So when you say hallelujah, you're saying praise the Lord. And the Bible usually tells you why we praise the Lord. And this part is no different. The reason why we praise the Lord in this particular chapter is that the redeemed people of God have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. They've been saved. Not only have they been saved, Jesus' judgments are true and they're righteous. God not only loves his people, he protects them from and he deals with the evil that has persecuted them. He comes against that evil. Verse two is specifically talking about Babylon, this culture that has persecuted the followers of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus loves us and his judgments are going to be true and righteous against that evil. So it says a second time, you hear this vast multitude say hallelujah. And you're gonna notice the volume just continues to escalate. Not only are they celebrating the fall of evil, they're celebrating that evil will never rise up again in this manner. So the 24 elders and the four angels that are around the throne of God, if you were not here with us in chapter four, we talk about that beautiful chapter, by the way. It talks about the elders around the throne. It talks about these angels that fly around. They're also joining in the worship. It says they fall down on their faces and they say, amen, hallelujah. Now, amen is another word that we say a lot in church, but a lot of people don't know what it means. It simply means truly it may be so, or, or it's an affirmation. Yes, we agree with you is what amen basically means. So these beings around the throne are saying, we agree with you, praise God, right? We are affirming what these other people are saying. Now, if chapter 18 was pretty depressing, which it was, and it's based around a civilization falling, and it's based around what's called a dirge, a funeral song. That's chapter 18. Chapter 19 is the exact opposite. It's the contrast of that. It's a celebration of life. So chapter 18 is about death. Chapter 19 is all about life. And we hear a voice from the throne of God saying, praise our God, his servants, those who are small and those who are great. And what these two chapters remind us is this, that the pursuit of self, the pursuit of sin leads to death and destruction, chapter 18. But the pursuit of God leads to life. And so we see the results of sin and then we see the results of turning from sin in chapter 19. One is about life, one is about death. We also see, and if you're, if you're using my translation, it doesn't actually say hallelujah a third time. It says, praise our God, but that is hallelujah, but it's not in Hebrew, it's in Greek. Now, why is that even significant? Why would John use two different forms of hallelujah? He was doing that because in the time of John, the idea that non-Jewish people could also be saved by God was groundbreaking. But isn't that beautiful? I'd say the majority of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, are not Jewish. And so the opportunity for us to also be a part of the family of God is a big deal. And so it mentions his servants, some translations will actually use the word slave. It says the slaves of God and then the servants of God. And when it says the servants or the slaves are to fear him, that's not a derogatory thing. 
It's not a condescending thing to be called a slave of God. What that means is that God has purchased us. He owns us. And we have willingly stepped into that ownership because we properly acknowledge who God is. He's our savior. He's our redeemer. He has bought us with his blood. So it's okay to be a slave of God. It's okay to be a servant of God, okay? Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, this is the angel, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. The angel says, worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, if you've been with me for a while through Revelation, in chapter 11, I might've told you something that you had never heard before about Revelation. People read the book of Revelation sometimes like it, it reads in chronological order from the beginning to the end. Now, that's kind of true, but not entirely. If you weren't here, chapters 6 through 11, at least half of chapter 11, talk about the seven years of the Great Tribulation. The very end of chapter 11 is out of chronological order. It needs to be pulled out and inserted where I just read. It's the same exact event. Event is chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. Now, that shows us, and it gives us pretty substantial evidence the chapters 12 through 18 is the same seven years as chapters 6 through 11. And so this just gives us evidence. If you weren't here for that, it's okay. You can go back and you can watch those, and it kind of makes a little bit more sense. So again, the volume of this chapter continues to rise. At this point, the volume has risen to where it sounds like thunder, rumbling of loud thunder, as the praise and the celebration just continues to, to grow and grow and grow. They declared that the Almighty reigns. They said, let us be glad. Let us rejoice. Let us give him glory. Why are they celebrating so loudly? They're celebrating because the reconciliation, the marriage of humanity and Jesus Christ has finally happened. This distance, this chasm between us and God has now been closed. It has been reconciled. And John has seen a glimpse of the celebration of God and man being one together. They're being married together. That's why they're celebrating this way. So in chapter 19, we're gonna see Jesus in three different roles, and this is the first one. The first role we see Jesus as in chapter 19 is a husband. Above all other things, Jesus is the one that loves us more than anyone else can ever love us. Not only does he love us more than anyone can ever love us, he is jealous of us. 
I remember the first time I taught the book of Revelation was 2010 and the church was very, very small. This service, the nine o'clock service at that time was about 30 people, right? And I remember we were at that service and a lady raised her hand in the middle of me teaching and goes, I don't believe that he was jealous. And I'm like, is that a question or like, you know, like, but anyways, I'm glad we don't do that anymore. And, um, but the Bible says in more than one place that we serve a jealous God. That's not a shallow jealousy that we have for people. This is the kind of deep loving jealousy to where if we see our spouse flirting with another person, if we see our spouse engaging in intimacy with another person, we have a righteous jealousy. That's how God feels about us when we worship other things, when we spend more time with other things. He's jealous of us. So listen, here's the thing. Their celebration is not over. Guys, we're gonna get into the details of heaven in the next couple of weeks, and it is awesome. We're gonna geek out. We're gonna talk about isotropic stones and all this kind. We're gonna be super nerdy. It's gonna be a lot of fun. But here's the thing about heaven. The beauty of heaven is not the streets of gold and the pearly gates and the isotropic stones that make up the foundation. That's not what the beauty of heaven is. The beauty of heaven is hanging out with Jesus. That's the beauty of heaven. That's why these people are celebrating because they are with their creator. They're hanging out with Christ himself. That's why they're celebrating. They have the opportunity to hang out with Christ because they prepared themselves. More importantly than when things happen in Revelation and exactly how they happen and what place in the world they happen, that's kind of secondary. The main point of the book of Revelation is simply this, be ready. Prepare yourself for Christ's return. John was given the book of Revelation for one reason, for those who have ears, Jesus said, for them to listen and to do what these words say. Now, here's the thing, and you probably have disagreed with me on several things as I've been teaching this. We can disagree on pre-tribulation rapture or mid or post, which I'm a post guy, but we can disagree on these things. We can disagree on eschatology, end time things. We as Christians, though, cannot disagree on the fact that one day Christ will come back and we must be ready. We must all agree on that fact. One day he's coming back and we must be ready. Paul said it like this to the church in Thessalonica. He said, the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction comes upon them like labor pains come on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you brothers are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. That's why I have a problem with pre-tribulation rapture. People are like, man, we're just gonna be sitting here and boom, you're gone. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, it says for those who are in the dark, it's gonna come like a thief in the night. But we're not in the dark. We're children of the light. The end of the world should not shock us. We are children of the day. We don't belong to the night. We don't belong to the darkness. And so Paul says, don't fall asleep. Don't rest like the rest of people rest. Stay awake, stay alert, be self-controlled. This is why getting high is a sin. This is why intoxication is a sin. Because when we're intoxicated, when we're high, we're not self-controlled, we're not alert, we are letting down our defenses. And that's where Peter says, when you're not sober, you're not vigilant, your adversary, the devil, comes in like a roaring lion. That's why we're to be sharp-minded. That's why we're to be attentive and vigilant and self-controlled. That's why intoxication is a sin. That's why smoking dope is a sin. Let's go ahead and be clear about that. 
the clothing of the people at the feast, the people who are at this marriage supper with Christ, their clothing is bright and pure, exactly the opposite of the culture that they were saved from. This notorious prostitute, her clothes were purple and scarlet. Now the pure bright clothes of the people at this feast represents the righteous acts of the saint. This reminds us, as the Bible says multiple times, that actions will follow faith. Works do not save us, but we're not saved from our works. When we are saved, we are supposed to produce fruit for God. If we say that we are saved, but there is no works to support that claim, I question your salvation. I say it all the time. We can say that we're an apple tree, but if there's only oranges on our branches, we are not an apple tree. As much as we might identify as an apple tree, we're not. People can say that they're Christians all day long, but if you don't do the things that Christ tells you to do, you are not following Jesus Christ. Jesus even says in the book of John, in chapter 14, I believe, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, I love Jesus. I don't do anything he tells me to do, but I love him. By definition, you don't. You don't follow him. You are not following the blatant words of Jesus Christ. I am shocked at how many Christians do not know the blatant words of Jesus Christ. They do not know the teachings of Christ. And so John, after seeing this marriage feast, he's just overwhelmed. And because he's overwhelmed, he falls down at the feet of his angel and starts worshiping the angel. Not because John is bad or doesn't know who Jesus is. He's just overcome by his emotions. This angel's like, whoa, hold on, buddy. Like, don't do that. Stand up. I'm a servant just like you are. And the angel kind of gets on to him a little bit. Don't worship me. Worship God. Because Jesus is the only one, the angel says, who holds the spirit of prophecy. What does that mean? It means that Jesus holds the future. Prophecy can mean the future. And prophecy can also mean the truth, the spoken truth. So Jesus holds the truth and Jesus holds the future. Don't worship me. I don't hold the truth. I don't hold the future. Jesus does. Worship him. Focus on him. Okay? Here's where we get into the fun stuff. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True. And he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except for himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth that he might strike the nations with it. He will also rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So first, we see Jesus as our husband, our lover, if you will. The second thing we see Jesus as in this chapter is our protector. Now, when Jesus was on earth, the only account in the Bible that we have when Jesus was on earth of him not walking, but actually riding on an animal was a donkey. A week before he was crucified, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, this time he is not riding to his death. He has conquered death and he is riding victoriously back into the earth on a white horse. 
Now, if you notice, Jesus' name is never mentioned in this part, but we know exactly who this writer is, right? We know exactly who the identity of this writer is. Here's some titles of the writer, which is Christ. The first one says that he's faithful and true. This directly flies in the face of corrupt earthly leadership. Now, I'm not trying to take a shot at our president or our Congress or anything like that, but what this is showing is earthly leadership is always corrupt. It's always imperfect. And so Jesus is going to come back, a little spoiler alert, he's gonna, he's gonna come back to planet earth, he's gonna reign on earth for a thousand years, but it's going to have integrity, it's going to be perfect leadership. The second title of Jesus, we don't know what it says. It says that no one knows except for him. What does this mean? What this means is there are aspects of God that we may never completely understand. In my humble opinion, I think our eternity is going to be learning more and more about God forever. He's that complex. And that's gonna be the beauty and the fun of an eternity with God as we're constantly learning more about him. But one of the things we cannot wrap our brain around now on earth is the Godhead. If you've never heard of that term, that's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity of God. Now, we worship one God, but that one God manifests himself in three persons. That doesn't make any sense to me. It's not supposed to make any sense to me. If I completely figured out God, he wouldn't be wor worth worshiping as God. He's above and beyond me. Now, here's the thing. It is okay to not be able to understand the Godhead. Well, it's like an egg, Corey. It's not like an egg. God is more complicated than an egg. He's more complicated than water and vapor and ice. He's more complicated than these shallow ways that we try to figure out God. And that is okay. If you ever meet someone who thinks they've figured God out, they're arrogant and you should probably step away from them. Anyways, it says that this writer's eyes were like a fiery flame. If you were with us at the beginning of Revelation, it mentions these eyes. These eyes probably represent omniscience, that he knows all, sees all. At this point, it probably also means that Jesus is a little angry. We're gonna see that here in a second. It says that there are many crowns on his head. This shows that Jesus has authority over all kingdoms. Now, maybe the most interesting detail of his attire is it says that his robe was dipped in blood. Now, I don't know what you meant when you or what you thought when you read this. Maybe some of you thought, well, it's the blood of the cross Maybe it's the blood of the martyrs who have died for Jesus. It's not either one of those. In fact, the blood that is on Jesus, this is where we start to get into the gory stuff, is the blood of his enemies. It's the ones that he is coming back, and we're gonna see here very quickly, annihilates. That's where the blood comes from. Well, how do you know that, Corey? Well, the Bible blatantly says it in the book of Isaiah. Why are your clothes red and your garments like the one who treads a wine press? I trampled the wine press alone and no one from the nations was with me. I trampled them in my anger and ground them underfoot in my fury. Their blood splattered on my garments and all my clothes were stained. So the blood that is on the rider is the blood of his enemies, not the blood that he shed on the cross, not the blood of the martyrs. It's the blood of his enemies. Now the third title of the rider it says the third title is the Word of God. If you go back into the book of John, John that wrote Revelation also wrote the book of John. In John 1.1, it said the Word was with God and the Word was God. This title shows us the power, not only of God's written Word that we have right here, the power of this written Word. It shows the power of God's spoken Word. God spoke everything we see into existence, the entire universe, this vast universe that we can't even measure. He spoke that into existence. When evil is obliterated, he's also gonna speak it out of existence. 
He's going to destroy the evil armies of the world, not with a sword, not with a gun, not with a bazooka. He's going to do it with his word. Now, that should encourage us that his word is extremely powerful. That's why you should pick this book up and read it. That's why you should get in the habit of sometimes reading it out loud so you can hear the words. There is extreme power in the word of God. And so it says that God comes, he opens his mouth and a sword came out of his mouth. God is not, it's not like the movies, right? We have like movies like Constantine and that cheesy movie, End of Days with Arnold Schwarzenegger, like shooting shotguns that are shaped like a cross at the devil. And that's not how it works. God doesn't need shotguns or airplanes or anything like that. God doesn't need modern weaponry to defeat evil. He simply needs his words. Now, what that shows us again is this. In our time, if you don't know where else to turn, if you don't know what else to do, turn to God's word. If you wanna know how to treat your spouse, turn to his word. If you wanna know how to handle your finances, turn to his word. If you wanna know how to raise your children, turn to his word. If you wanna learn about justice, if you wanna have power and wisdom, we don't need brute force to fight evil. We just need the words of God. That's what we need. We don't need to go and fight. We don't, that's not the kind of battle we fight anyways. We fight not against flesh and blood, the Bible says. We fight against evil spirits and we do that through prayer and by reading the word of God. That's how we fight evil. That's how we overcome. So I, I have a leg tattoo and the first time I studied Revelation, I'm like, wow, Jesus has a leg tattoo as well? Probably not, but he does have a name written on his thigh. So as Jesus is going to trample the wine press of God's fierce anger, John mentions that he has something written on his robe and then he has something written on his leg. Probably not a literal mark. But it says that the people who followed the beast have a mark of the beast. It says that the people who follow God also have a mark, and Jesus has a unique mark. Now, why it's on his thigh, we're not sure. There's a couple of Old Testament things where they talked about how they would take covenants and grab each other's thigh and swear a covenant. It could have something to do with that, but it's not really where or, or even necessarily what that is there for, but it's what it says. We know this is Christ because it says, King of kings, and Lord of Lords, if we forget all other things, you have to remember that Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, okay? Last part. John says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He called out in a loud voice saying to all the birds flying overhead, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of everyone, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner along with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. It's pretty graphic. So the first celebration we hear about is this consummation with God. It's the people of God, the church, the bride, and their husband, Jesus Christ. 
The second feast that we read about is this gruesome depiction of evil's demise. John says he saw an angel standing in the sun. This angel calls out, he sends out an invitation. Hey, all you buzzards, all you vultures, there's gonna be a lot of meat for you guys to eat. You're all invited. Come eat the flesh of kings, right? It's like when we go and get like a nice dinner, right? We get like sushi or something. He's like, hey, you wanna eat some kings? Eat the the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, mighty horses and their riders, slave and free, small and great. And what we have at the end of chapter 19 is one of the most gruesome depictions in the entire Bible. This is one of those parts in the Bible where you're like, I don't, you know, it may not be 100% kid friendly. And though this battle of Armageddon is extremely gruesome, it's very graphic, the evil people who are destroyed in this part have brought this upon themselves. What this, this, this graphic depiction shows us is God is not only going to deal with evil, he's going to deal with it violently. The angel in the last chapter said that God is going to violently throw down these people, and he does. This final clash has been built up in previous chapters. What's interesting about the battle of Armageddon, though, is it's not really much of a battle, not really much of a fight. In fact, they're all there, hundreds of millions of people who are gonna fight against the armies of God. They show up, and and the only person who even fights is Jesus. No one else on the good side even does anything. And it says that Jesus captures the Antichrist, captures the false prophet, as they're about to wage war, Jesus instantly captures them and instantly obliterates everyone else. Now, why did he go for the Antichrist and the false prophet first? The reason why is the Antichrist and this false religious leader deceived a lot of people. I don't know if you know this or not, Jesus gets really upset when you mislead other people spiritually. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says to people, if you mislead little children, it is better that you tie a stone around your neck and kill yourself. Jesus says that, that's in the Bible. I would rather you put a millstone around your neck and drown yourself in a lake than mislead these children. These two have misled hundreds of millions of people and God is going to deal with them and he's gonna deal with them in a very severe way. It says that they're thrown into the lake of fire. They're the first ones to go to hell as we know it. Now, this is the first time in the entire Bible that hell is referred to as a lake of fire. We'll talk about a little bit more in the next couple of weeks. But there's no fight, just massive bloodshed. So what happens is because the leaders are gone and because, quite frankly, Jesus has no rival, the battle doesn't even really happen. God opens his mouth. He speaks a word. We don't know what that word is, but he speaks something. And the world's evil armies are quickly obliterated by his word. Just like he creates, he uncreates. Now, that brings us to the third role that we see Jesus in. We've seen him as husband. We've seen him as protector. Now we see him as the righteous judge. If we deny to join Christ at the first feast, we inevitably end up at the second feast. What that means is this. If we opt out of a relationship with Christ, everyone is invited into a relationship with Christ, everybody. If we fail, though, to let him be our husband, if we fail to let him be our protector, by default, we become the enemies of God. By default, we place ourselves into a place of judgment. Why? Because there are only two sides. This is very unpopular. This is, I'm going I'm I'm to say some very unpopular things here in a second, but all I'm going to do is I'm going to repeat Jesus Christ. Jesus said this in Luke. He said, anyone who's not with me is against me. That's it. 
There's no neutral ground. Do you know what Jesus forces us to do? Jesus forces us to have an opinion of him. He doesn't just kind of like let you ride in the middle. He makes you decide who he is. He even asked his disciples, who do you say I am? Who do you think I am? Jesus says, you're either for me or you're against me. Who doesn't gather with me scatters. There are only two sides. Now, that is a very unpopular thing to say. It is very unpopular to say that there are distinctive lines between what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, what is of Jesus and what is not of Jesus. That's not very popular. We don't like to say those things. Even within the church, we don't like to say those things. And that's a problem. It's a problem because it's not of Jesus. Jesus says in the book of Matthew, don't be deceived. I came to bring a sword Now, that's not a sword of war. That's not a sword of fighting because Jesus is against war and fighting. I know he goes to war here. That's a a battle against evil. But Jesus is not violent. He even says to Peter, if you live by a sword, you're gonna die by a sword. So the sword that Jesus came to bring was the sword that makes the dividing line between what is of God and what is not of God. And that's very unpopular. People don't like to talk about that. We like to create this gray area kind of in the middle. But here's the thing, Jesus Christ was very clear. And the absolutes of Christ have been extremely polarizing. But here's what's what's beautiful about God. God loves us so much that this book is not ambiguous. If you wanna know what is sexual sin and what is okay sexually, all you gotta do is read this. It says it, black and white, clear as crystal. It's not ambiguous. If you wanna talk about what marriage should look like, if you wanna talk about how finances should be held, if you should talk about how our response to the government should be, these things are not ambiguous in the Bible. They're they're, they're very clear, crystal clear. But these distinctives, these absolutes have become polarizing. But here's what Jesus said. You have to decide. You have to choose. It even says in the Old Testament, choose this day. If your family's gonna serve the Lord or not serve the Lord, you have to make a decision. And to Christ... The fence is not an acceptable place to hang out. So many Christians hang out on this fence and Jesus is saying there there is no fence. There is no middle ground. There is no third option. We have two options. The first option is the pursuit of self. You know what's interesting about satanic thought? I say this a lot, but I wanna really burn it in your head. You guys have probably heard me talk about a couple of these names. Do you know the basis of Satanism is not to worship the devil? I don't know if you guys know that or not. That's not the basis of Satanism. The basis of Satanism is to worship yourself as a God. I'm my own God. Satanism, the grandfather of Satanism was a man named Aleister Crowley. He's been dead for a long time. Aleister Crowley was basically the godfather of of, of the occult, right? And Aleister Crowley had what's called the law of Thelema. You can look it up, the law of Thelema. Most of your favorite musicians probably have it tattooed somewhere on their body, the law of Thelema. The law of Thelema simply states, do as thou wilt is the whole of the law. What that translates to modern day language is, do what you wanna do, you're your own God. Do what you wanna do. In fact, a man, tamed, a man named Anton LaVey in the 1960s in San Francisco took Aleister Crowley's teachings and he wrote what's called the Black Bible, the Satanic Bible. And the Satanic Bible doesn't open up with worship Satan, oh hail Satan. It opens up with the law of Thelema. Do what you want, that's the whole of the law. You make your own rules, you're in charge, you're God. The pursuit of self. 
What's fascinating about the pursuit of self, and we've seen it all throughout human history, is humanity, if left to its own devices, always eats itself alive. <laughs> always. If everyone was just looking out for themselves, there'd be no law, it'd be complete anarchy. We would destroy ourselves. Why? Because selfishness is incapable of doing life with other people. That's why marriages fall apart. That's why finances fall apart. That's why whole empires fall apart is the pursuit of self. That's why when we pursue ourselves, we come to an end. There's nothing beyond it. It leads to death. The other option though, besides pursuing self, is pursuing God. You know the irony of Jesus Christ? The irony of Jesus Christ is this. He says, if you really wanna learn how to live, give up your life. What? Jesus says, if you really want to find life, lose your life. It says that in the book of Matthew. Jesus says, if you wanna be at the front of the line, choose to be at the end of the line. And Jesus says, I will make the first last and I will make the last first. He's saying, those of you that pursue yourself, you're gonna end up last. But those of you who put me first, you will end up at the front. It's ironic. We have a world that all they do is they want material things. They want money and gold and jewels and all this fancy stuff. And God says, that's the stuff we like pave our roads with in heaven. You know what I mean? Like, so the people who don't pursue those things will actually inherit those things. Jesus says, for those of you who will trust me, those of you who will put me first, if you will lose your lives, you will truly find your identity. We live in a culture that all we talk about is identity. I find my identity in my race. I find it in my gender. I find it in my sexual preference. I find it in my education. I find my identity in my wealth or my job or whatever the case may be. And God says, if you will just put me first and find your identity in the one you were created in the image after, you will truly find purpose. You will truly find contentment. We have a culture that all we talk about is the pursuit of happiness. It's in our declarations, right? The pursuit of happiness. The problem with the pursuit of happiness is happiness is contingent on circumstances. Contentment is completely different. Contentment is not contingent on your circumstances. Contentment is something given to us regardless if the world is burning around us. And contentment only comes through an identity in God, through a relationship with God. And here's the thing, when we put God first, it doesn't just change us, it changes everything around us. I said this last week, if we will just seek first the kingdom of God, God says, I'll, I'll add everything else. Man, if you're worried about your relationships, if you will seek God first, I guarantee you, your relationships will be better. If you're worried about your marriage, if you're worried about your income, if you're worried about your job situation, Jesus even said, if you're worried about food, if you're worried about clothing, seek first the kingdom. And God will add these things to your life. God will give you what you need. God will provide. So what we've seen in the last two weeks is this. We all have a choice. We're gonna serve one God. Jesus himself said, you can't serve two, it's impossible because you'll love one and hate the other or you'll hate one and love the other. Jesus says, no man can serve two masters. It's impossible. You can only serve one. Now, Satan doesn't need you to worship him. Satan just needs you to worship you. So we have to ask ourselves today, 
what comes first? Do we come first? Or does God come first in our lives? I know that's the simplest question I could ever ask you. And I know everyone says, well, God, God, obviously. But then when we take an inventory of what we do with our time, money, and energy, the fruit doesn't really match up, does it? The evidence isn't really there, is it? You can wear all the shirts and the bumper stickers and you can get Jesus tattooed across your forehead. And we may fool everyone else, but we don't fool God. He sees the heart. He sees what we truly desire, what we truly want, and what we're truly after. He knows, he knows. Let me ask you today, if you were to be honest with yourself, what have you pursued? And let me ask you another question. Has it given you the, re the results that you've wanted? Has the pursuit of self made you content? Has the pursuit of self made you fulfill fulfilled? Has it given you purpose? Have you found your identity? And are those things going to sustain? Interesting. Would you guys bow your heads with me, please? Guys, in my life, I've pursued myself many times. The temptation to pursue yourself always comes back up. All of us have struggled with this. All of us have dealt with this in some way or another. All of us have fallen short. I wanna encourage you today though, even if you've fallen short, even if you've lived for yourself, even if you're honest today and you pray and, and God reveals to you, man, you've been pursuing the wrong God. Here's how, here's how good God is. Here's how much he loves us. That at any time, if we will just be humble enough to say, Lord, I have pursued the wrong thing, God will forgive us. We can still have a seat at the marriage feast. We can do that. I don't care what you've done and how many times you've done it. God loves you. And he's inviting us to sit with him. If you're in this room and maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you're a new Christian, you have questions, Greg's up here to my right, your left. He's wearing a button-up shirt. If you have any questions, if, if maybe you're just absolutely not a believer, but something I said today just kind of like piques your interest or intrigues you, come up here and talk to Greg. He doesn't know everything, but he can help you get started in the right direction. He can pray with you if you want him to. There's also men and women up here at the front to pray for you. If you have any need, absolutely anything, please don't go at this alone. We're not meant to go at this alone. Let one of these men or women pray for you, please. There's also communion all the way around you. Represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the bread and the wine. Everyone is welcome to take that communion with your spouse or with your family or by yourself, whatever you wanna do. Everyone is welcome to take that as long as you ask Jesus to forgive you, okay? Last thing, and then I'll let you guys go. Sometime, if not today, sometime this week, find a place to get alone with God and with your mouth, I mean, where you can hear it, honestly ask God, God, have I pursued myself more than I've pursued you? And then be humble enough to listen to him. And if you'll do that, God will show you. And then you have to respond to that, and God will bless you. Father, Lord, we love you, we thank you, we lift you up. God, I have pursued myself so many times over the years, God, and you've forgiven me and you helped me, Lord. God, all of us in this room are tempted. All of us in this room have fallen short. I pray, God, that you show us grace and mercy, Lord. God, forgive us, humble us, 
Lord, let us seek you first, God, and we know that everything else that we need will be taken care of. Lord, we love you. We give this day to you, God. I pray that you bless everyone in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys so much. You guys have a great weekend, and see you next week.